Well, thank you very much for a nice introduction. <laughs> I expect I'll have to explain what the why eat green cucumbers about yeah. before I begin. <laughs> um, this is actually a proverb in Nepali, which um, a lot of uh, people shout at um, women. I was going to say old women. They're actually middle aged <coughs> who are going to adult literacy classes, and it means. What's the point of eating a luxury like green cucumber when you've got no teeth and you're about to die? And they use that to say what's the point of learning to read and write when you're an adult. So that's why it summed up my research on women's literacy and development, in case you were wondering. But that's not what I'm going to be talking about today. Um, today, I'm really hoping to kind of bring together a lot of the research that I've done since coming into higher education. Um, and I'm a relatively late entrant in, but I started at UEA in the year 2000. Um, and what I realised when I was kind of reflecting was that a lot of my research on internationalisation um, with international students and more recently thanks to the SRHE scoping grant um, on international agents um, has given me quite a lot of insight into the ways in which higher education in the UK is changing and particularly the impact of marketisation um, at kind of micro level as well as macro level. Um, but when I came to reflect about it, I felt that perhaps our research base is rather limited on internationalisation, and I include myself in this, because it's very much been policy-focused and led, I think, and directed, shaped by policy um, concerns. So what I'm going to be talking about today um, as suggestions for alternative directions or how we might complement the current research base on internationalisation and as Linda mentioned, I'll be drawing on some projects that I've done with international students at UEA um, on transitions into UK higher education, um, but also the recent research with um, international agents. So I thought I'd start with a bit of theory, if that's okay, <laughs> on internationalisation. Um, and just really to situate myself, um, because I think the, the idea of a transformative approach to um, internationalisation has been well written about by <laughs> Sue here. And I found this book actually, is it called Internationalising? The University. The University, yeah. I didn't know if it's the UK University. Um, but it's a great introduction if you haven't read it to some of the ideas around how do we define internationalisation as opposed to globalisation. But also this notion of transformative internationalisation which came about through Bartel's work, I think 2003, um, positing the idea that there's a sort of continuum between symbolic internationalisation and transformative. Um, and in this book, actually, you define it as being the difference. Symbolic internationalisation is something an institution um, does, whereas transformative is something it is. And I think, as this quotation suggests, it's more about um, challenging existing practices, values, and moving from an ethnocentric to an ethno-relative. Um, and I think there's not many people who would probably disagree with that in my university too, but the issue for me has always been how to make that shift um, from symbolic to transformative, and I guess a lot of my research has been around that. Um, rather depressingly, when you read this uh, quotation from DeVita and Case in 2003 um, about universities paying lip service to um, internationalisation and not engaging in a radical reassessment of HE purposes, priorities and processes, I would say um, that that probably is a similar case today. And how far have we really moved um, in the last 12 years or so? Um, 
So a lot of the debate has been around, you know, um, what do we mean by internationalization? And I found Moringi and colleagues' uh, work quite interesting in that they're putting internationalization in a global context and looking at how universities in Africa and um, East Asia and so on are approaching it. Um, but what they're coming up with is the idea that internationalization has been largely atheoretical and it's been driven by practice. And I think from my perspective, I don't find that problematic, but perhaps it's the type of practice which they're engaged in which is problematic. Um, so this is quite good for framing what I'm going to be looking at in this presentation, um, in that I'm looking at what kind of theories could begin to inform our research in internationalization, but also what are the dominant practices that we're really talking about here. Um, Oh, yes, I was going to just talk a little bit because my assumption is that internationalization, certainly in the UK, has been very much underpinned by an economic rationale and this idea that internationalization has grown alongside marketization, so the two kind of interact and it's sometimes difficult to disentangle the different forces. Um, again, this is from um, Moringa's work where they did a, a survey, 500 universities around the world and they looked at the different rationales that they had for internationalization. Um, in fact, they had six rationales which they were looking at, which were economic, political, social, cultural, technological, educational, pedagogical. And they came out with these uh, three kind of key or um, uh, dominant approaches to internationalization, which they mapped onto different parts of the world. Any any suggestions which part of the world or what do you, where do you think the UK might fit in there? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be cynical. Right. Okay, well who could you think of who might be cultural value driven internationalization? China. China, yeah, mm. actually East Asia was um, one. And curriculum value driven, any suggestions? Australia. No. Australia. No, they're commercial. No, I think they're commercial, mm. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it was Africa actually. A lot of the African universities said they were curricular. I mean, this is all based on interviews and uh, questionnaires. Um, but I think it's interesting in terms of, you know, where we think we're going in the UK um, in terms of internationalization. Obviously, you know, we all thought it was commercial value, didn't we? And um, internationalization tends to be seen as international recruitment, generation um, revenue through international partnerships and so on, certainly in my own university. Um, so the the idea for um, a lot of people is how can we begin to move to internationalization of the curriculum in particular. I'm a little bit dubious about the cultural value driven in this article because it's actually a bit conflated with economic, I think, and uh, promoting different ideologies and so on. But perhaps the curriculum value one is one that we're, is less problematic. Um, and I just want to put up this um, extract from Betty Leask's <coughs> article, which is giving really the definition of curriculum that I'm using in this presentation, that it's more than curriculum, more than kind of content. She's talking about it's not just the content of curriculum, as well as the teaching and learning arrangements and obviously assessment and support services of a program of study. And I think that's particularly relevant to marketization, which you know, I'm focusing on here, because certainly the support services that have grown around accountability and are beginning to shape a lot of our teaching and learning contexts are really significant in that respect. So 
So just before I move on um, to some of the examples from my research, um, I just want you to sort of dwell for a minute on the kind of research that is um, taking place you know, under the theme of internationalization. And I do see a kind of positive movement in terms of the research on international students, um, which you know, fitted originally, I think, in the 80s and 90s with this statement about you know, what the universities do to fit international students into their existing cultures. Now, there is um, more interest, I think, in um, you know, moving away from this idea of the deficit perspective on international students, that they don't have critical thinking or that um, they don't have enough language skills. Um, and, but there's still very much um, a focus on international students per se as a sort of separate homogenous group and some essentializing really around cultural difference, which I think holds us back. Um, I think also conceptually we've been really limited by binaries that we introduce into this kind of research, that it's always the home student and the other, or the, um, the UK and the other, the UK university and the other, or before and after UK higher education, and that's the way we're looking at this kind of area. Um, and I include myself in this. You might notice that my book, which won that award, was called Cross-Cultural Perspectives on Education. I would actually call it now intercultural, and, I, and it's not just um, you know, a word, <laughs> it is actually about my position, I think I've changed, that I also was very much using these binaries in 2005, and um, I realised that it's held me back in terms of how I look at internationalisation, um, that I was implicitly using a kind of integration discourse. Um, so to return again to Meringue's work, um, I think this idea about the difference between globalisation and internationalisation is useful to think about because he's really suggesting that globalisation tends to focus on creation of universal models, whereas internationalisation seeks to promote the greater exploitation of knowledge. I would say construction of knowledge, actually. Somehow the exploitation is not a great term. Through multi-perspectives and multi-models, um, so it's that notion of multiple perspectives and um, the outsider perspective is not, you're moving between outsider and insider perspectives all the time. And as a, an anthropologist, I think that is the, the um, essence really of participant observation, that you're continually moving between emic and emic And that's what we need to really bring into internationalization. Um, and the work I've cited here, um, Joan Turner's book on um, what is it called? language in the I think it's language in the in the academy, not in the university. Um, this is an interesting kind of body of work, um, which I don't know where people are coming from, but the the body of work on academic literacies um, has been very influential for me, partly because I'm from a literacy background. But Turner's book is really arguing that in higher education. Um, language is only kind of viewed when it's a problem and that we need to shift to seeing it as a resource within higher education, particularly the fact that many of international students and staff are working in multiple languages and literacies. Um, but it's more than just a kind of technical stance that I'm adopting here. It's ideological, really, and it's the idea that <coughs> literacy practices construct um, 
power, relationships of power between us, and this you'll see the relevance of this to the to the agents and so on later. Um, you know, we're all, uh, by literacy, I mean more than reading, writing, but speaking and listening, and multimodal communication as well, which I think Philip will be talking about. But in this room, you know, we are setting up certain relationships through the way that you're sitting here, and I'm speaking, and I've got my text. Um, and it's moving away from the idea that um, reading and writing is an individual um, action. It's actually a collaborative exercise, often. And this is really relevant to what we're talking about with internationalization, international agents and international students who are, um, you know, in tutorials or whatever, which um, Joan Turner calls a contested space. Um, what's happening there? That's really what our focus will, will be. Um, so I'm going to move now on to two areas, as I mentioned. Um, and the first one is around recruitment agents. And as you can see, I thought we might start with an activity, <laughs> partly so you can talk to each other, um, but partly also because I think it'd be really interesting to map where people are coming from. Uh, just to reassure you, this is not my research data, so it's <laughs> absolutely fine. And we heard that the Chatham House rules, I think it applies to the stickies here as well. So what I'd like you to do is, um, we were originally hoping there would be tables, but there aren't. So um, if you could sort of go with, say, six people who are sitting around you, turn your chairs around, um, and then I'm going to give out some of these post-it notes, and I'd like you to take a few... Um, of whatever colour you think you fit into. So if you think you have a teaching or a research role perhaps in the university, take pink. If you have administrative or policy maker role, take green. And if you're yellow, um, take, if, sorry, if you're a student or you're in some learning role, I was going to say learning, but all of us are learning, um, just take yellow. And then the idea is, um, just individually, to write on a different post-it note, a different point, either um, any thoughts you have about agents, um, any questions or issues that arise for you from your dealings with agents, or even your very remote dealings with agents in higher education. Um, and then I'll move on to the next step. So do you want to move into groups? I think we've, I did a quick count. I think we're about 30, so probably six. <laughs> well, as I mentioned, I sort of come new into this area of ages. And, um, for me, uh, like somebody here said, actually, as teaching staff, I, I have no idea actually about the impact of ages on a lot of the students' uh, lives and pre university experiences. Um, so, this project, which is the SRHE funded one, um, grew out of interviews with international students, MA students actually, about how they come to my university. And a lot of them talked about the role of the agent in different ways. Sometimes they were helping with visa, other times they were actually helping the right personal statement, advising them which universities to go to and so on. So that's how I became interested in the role of the agent. And the project that I did with my colleague Anna Magyar um, was actually we didn't, uh, this is a small scoping project, so we didn't have a lot of um, scope to do empirical research. So we, um, reviewing the literature that exists on um, agents, but we were also looking really at theoretical perspectives on recruitment agents. And this is how it links to internationalization that I've been talking about. And 
also we did do a little bit of empirical um, Skype interviews with agents, which I'll share with you. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with this kind of field, and I'm sorry, I kind of assumed that everybody had some starting knowledge, which is probably the wrong way to start. Um, the presence of agents has really increased in the UK, and Enzo here has actually done a lot of research with agents and with, um, with HEIs and the international offices. Um, looking at you know, what role they play, and I'd really recommend the British Council report that you've done on that. Um, but in the UK, there's been a real shift after 1999 with the Prime Minister's initiative and the very ambitious targets for international student recruitment. And agents previously had been seen with more suspicion became kind of welcomed on board by a lot of HEIs. Um, the situation in Australia. Um, and New Zealand, I think, was uh, it started much earlier, so that a lot of international students were already being recruited through that route. Um, in the research that's been done recently, um, the observatory um, report that came out last year was suggesting that it varies a lot according to the level, so you'll have far more um, undergraduates being recruited that way, international students I'm talking about, than PhD level. Um, and there's been quite a bit of concern about how far this approach to internationalisation, to international <coughs> recruitment, marginalises the academics um, by putting the international office and the administrators and policy makers in the sort of steering seat. Um, but I think they're no longer, well, some of the American literature I've read was quite, um, you know, uh, saying we should get rid of recruitment agents at one point, but now there's more. <coughs> acknowledgement that actually they are an important part of the landscape um, and this is really sort of the point that I'm starting <coughs> from. Um, I found Colin's work in New Zealand was really interesting. Um, he was looking at Korean uh, students who'd been recruited through agents and he was really suggesting that the agents had filled a niche which was created by the withdrawal of state regulation from student ability and educational provision. So they're, they're actually you know, um, uh, performing a useful function in that, in that context, he was suggesting. Uh, what you may not know if you're from kind of outside this uh, area is that the um, universities, the HEIs, actually pay a percentage of the um, student fee to the agents. So it's not just um, uh, the students who are paying a fee, in fact, they're not supposed to be paying a fee to a lot of the agents. Um, but in some countries, um, it's argued that they feel they get a better service if they pay the agent, as well as the HEI paying about 10 to 15 percent of the student fee. So to move on to, I was going to focus really on the literature which we reviewed as part of this project. Um, as you might guess, a lot of the um, research on recruitment agents has come very much from a marketing perspective. Um, and we found there were quite a few articles around student decision making, um, looking at the decisions that students make about which HEI to go to in terms of consumer behaviour. Um, this article by Pimper is from Thailand. Um, but there's also some interesting ideas around how you can apply theories from marketing and business studies to higher education. And the example here and so and colleagues um, article um, where they're applying agency theory which I haven't come across before not being from this discipline but I gather it's the sort of idea that um, both principal and agent 
are motivated by self-interest. So they'll only sort of selectively disclose information to each other. So it's a way of looking at the kind of management strategies or styles of the universities in how they deal with um, you know, the, the group at the back talked about control mechanisms. So it's a way of analysing those kind of practices around management and control and power. And they come up with this sort of typology of different approaches. Um, we moved on from that to looking at migration and mobility studies, partly because of the work of Collins, which is directly with um, agents. Um, but we were influenced by um, Waters, well, a lot of the work on migration and international students' internationalization, which doesn't necessarily talk about agents, but it's this notion of um, what's been called a new paradigm of mobility, where you're no longer talking about student in place A or place B, but you're talking about the power that they have to move from A to B. And it's a bit like I was talking about literacy. It's seeing migration as a collective activity that involves lots of different resources and players. And for us, it seemed that that seemed a very logical way of looking at the role of the agent as one of those factors. Um, and Colin's work in New Zealand, as I mentioned, is really interesting because uh, it's looking at the, how the social lives and the kind of informed economy, really, of migrants links with the formal sector. Okay, I'm going to right. <laughs> Rush. Um, but moving on to, so there's quite a bit around mobility that's relevant, um, but this last one is completely outside the higher education sector um, and comes from research with Burundi's asylum seekers. Um, Blomot is actually a professor of African languages in Belgium and is often asked by the authorities to explain about the documents that uh, asylum seekers use. Um, and why we found this was relevant, because he's talking about how do you interpret a text that's created in one part of the world and moved over to Belgium and how we read it. So for, for us, that seemed very relevant to the, the actual practices of a broker or the recruitment agent. In effect, they're a literacy mediator too, because they're taking the texts from the UK university and the ones that the um, student produces, and they're actually looking at how is this read and interpreted in a completely different cultural context? Um, and just very briefly, this is from some of the interviews that we conducted, firstly with the international office. And as I said, they seen the agent's role as being mediating and translating messages, not literally, but explaining what they mean. Um, what came across through our very limited Skype interviews with agents was how they saw themselves often as educators. Um, and in fact, it mirrored a lot of our own views about how um, kids, as they call them, were changing in their approach to higher education. They were having to learn to navigate the internet and all the information available, but they were also becoming very dependent on the counsellors. And most of these agents we interviewed were, had been international students themselves previously in the UK, so they're very much reflecting on their own background, saying, well, you know, things have changed, they expect us to do it all for them. Um, what came out very much from this project was the, our awareness of a very different culture, actually, within the international office, in our own university, and within this whole field, um, which was very much shaped around commercialization and um, um, kind of unquestioning, I suppose, of some of the kind of marketized relationships which we were questioning of as academics. So I'll move on to 
the next area that I was going to talk about, and I have to be quite quick. Um, these are actually vignettes which are constructed from previous research with master's students at UEA, and they were talking about um, the issues that they faced when they came into like UK university. Um, why we did this um, was because we were looking at how can we use the experiences of international students to inform our teaching and learning approaches. And the first one, I'll leave you to read it later, is about um, Chinese students. And it's a Chinese student saying, actually, I find it really disturbing that they all talk in lectures, but I don't want to feel prejudiced by complaining to the lecturer because um, that. And this one is about a non-Chinese student who is in a, a mainly Chinese group and felt excluded in the group discussions and that she wasn't getting a point across. So I put this up here because I think in a way this is typical of research on international students and I myself did it. Um, and I think this sort of approach is in a way holding us back because it's very kind of micro level, oh, how do we do it? How do we fix things? Um, and yes, it works well in staff training and so on, but I think there's much more potential in internationalization research um, to, to look at the kind of wider issues. And for me, it's about moving beyond these cultural dualisms that I started off by talking about. Um, and I want to show you a seven minute clip, is that possible? Yeah, well, just um, take us to the other one. Right, and then I'll quickly discuss it. Um, but uh, this, uh, perhaps you could think about these issues, um, these <coughs> questions, whose knowledge, whose authority, whose literature, whose language, what's good academic writing? This is a clip from a DVD which I made with international doctoral students in 2010 who were talking again about their transition to the UK university, but also the, um, it comes with a booklet here, which you've got some of, um, but also their experiences of supervision and the differences in, in practices. So have a look at this. Do we leave lights out or? Um, yeah, we can do that. So. <laughs> Is that volume okay at the back? But for me, writing is a culture. And uh, in Africa, for example, where I came from, you, you, you speak as you write. But here I discovered that there's a difference between speaking and writing. And I think I'm getting on well with it, but initially it was a bit difficult. If compared between the, the writing style between um, in Thai and in English, is um, is different um, uh, from the, the the form or the style of the writing because in Thailand they don't. When I'm when I was a student, I I quite don't uh, receive uh, many assignments to hand in. They give me a structure, and maybe because I'm studying mm -hmm. in the in the field of scientific before, so it's about the experiment. It's not about, but I come here as a PhD student, so it's really important for writing in critical episode. So this is a different thing. So in Thailand, it's not more critic, but it depends on the field of study. We have our national funding agency who will be, who will grant uh, research fund in Thailand, but we need to go through the process as well. Uh, many uh, research projects has to be in terms of uh, integrated research and has to be practiced with local people and we tend to come across with less theories supported but uh, when I'm 
started my research here, what I have to, to do is to find uh, theoretical supports, you know, all the theories that supports what's going on and what I'm going to do. So basically, I need to engage into more in-depth references and especially those uh, related theories. You are speaking orally, uh, your, your, your language, uh, it might still be formal, but the fluidity of that language is, is quite obvious. Um, but when you are writing, you are restrained because your, 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 your choice of word um, um, can be misinterpreted in different contexts uh, because nobody is listening to you talk, but here they are reading the written word. So your choice of word is it, is is uh, is constrained to me, and and that that affects the way you articulate and uh, your, your point of view or, or the position you want to put across. Because of the fact that uh, we are mainly used to the quantitative aspect of writing, we don't seem to write much in the quantitative sense. You use a lot of statistics and the rest to interpret your data. You don't talk so much. But when we came to the realm of a, a school of education here, for example, you have to write so much and you have to explain every point. You have to also support them with other ways and all sorts of things. So that's a point of a, a challenge, always a, a challenge to international students per se, because it, it's not easy. I mean, sometimes you, you have some idea, you want to express it, and you cannot get the right way to do it. So it's a sort of a hell between you and your supervisors when you put it this way. You know that this is what it means, and your supervisor saying, "What is it?" I'm from Tanzania, and I've lived there all my life. So there are some things I know as I was growing up. But when I put it in in the thesis, my supervisor will ask me, "Who said this?" You need a reference. Here. I say, "I don't have any reference. This is how it is." So, and no one has written about it. So if I don't put it, no one will know, no one will talk about it. There are no books, no research has been done, but it, that is what it is. It takes a pretty long time at the beginning for me to get used to new um, theoretical related um, stuff because I have some speculars and now I'm doing research in social, social, social science research. Um, the theory from science and social science is sometimes can be very different. So I have to get used to those new terms and theories and understanding um, the relationship between you know, complex social, social science issues behind. The thing is that I recognize that sometimes the thing that makes sense to us doesn't make sense to an English culture. Maybe the way we express it. Sometimes, I, I remember initially my supervisor says, I talk too much and uh, I'm writing too much. He want me to just say it clearly and to the point. I said, no, but what about expressing myself very well? I come to recognize that in English culture, they are not after your expression. To, you just say what you want to say and leave it there. The idea is that everybody is expected to know. But I find it very difficult because I was like accusing myself. I said, I'm not writing too much. I'm not expressing well. But I think it's part of the thing we need to learn when you want to write in English. Uh, you need to be clear, you need to be succinct to the point, you don't need to, you know, move around, you don't need to go clearly. 
But presently, I think uh, I'm beginning to see the joy in writing as clear as possible. And because you are passing a message, you are not telling a story. Sometimes we need to to make them, to make them really understand how being with you in the field. Like uh, there was an issue of me calling a certain a place where I went, a, a town center. When the idea from my supervisor about a town center is different with the town center in Africa or a village. They are totally different. So you will find in my cases I decided to put a lot of pictures to make them really be there with me in the field and understand. I have significant and uh, practical experience in the field and uh, I've learned some of those things by doing and uh, based on my experience and knowledge. And but in academia, when you begin to write some of those experiences, you've got to attribute it to somebody else. And it means you've got to look for a literature in which someone has written the same thing or similar and attribute it to that person. And I have concerns about that because I'm um, attributing what I know based on my experience to somebody else. And uh, I don't feel quite comfortable about that, really, because it looks as if uh, somebody's taking credit for what you already know. Maybe the person might do the same or not have the same experience, but just because it's written a book or a journal, an article in a journal, and you haven't, it means you've got to credit that person with your experience and knowledge. That's where it ends. <laughs> um, so I think the way those students spoke so eloquently about um, mediating different cultures, different practices, gives you an insight into the way in which they are actually situated as the experts in terms of intercultural communication and learning. Um, and what I found really exciting working with international students in this way is to look at how can we bring this resource into the internationalised university. Um, uh, because really we're talking about an outsider perspective on our practices, which we may take for, for granted. Um, but we're also talking about um, reversing some of the hierarchies. In fact, you'll see in your pack there's examples from a Thai student who was saying she's not allowed to cite from Thai journals, only from English ones. This was in health because they're better. And she said, well, I accept that because my supervisor says you can't read the Thai ones, so you wouldn't know whether it's good or bad. But there's these implicit issues which actually relate to very big issues um, around the geopolitics of academic publishing. Um, and, you know, if you're uh, writing in one language which is not valued so much as another, I had a German student who said, when I go back to Germany, I won't write in German because you know, social science is better to, to publish in the high, high status um, UK, US journals. So a lot of these assumptions are much bigger than international students. They're about how we operate um, as universities, as academics in a globalised world. Um, and I was just... Oh, thank you. Oops. I was just going to conclude, actually, by suggesting the ways in which, going back to internationalisation as a lens on the marketised university, I think there's two possibilities and a, quite a big challenge, really, for me. Um, the first one really relates to this idea of looking at how cultures and identities are constructed, and that video is actually an example of that. Um, we were looking at how people construct their identities as Malaysian or whatever um, in the higher education institution. And I think we're all very much aware that university uh, teaching, research, 
spaces are being transformed through marketization. I'm certainly aware of that. Um, and in a way, it's easier to see culture <coughs> within the international context as being, you know, Ghanaian or English, like the guy Carlin is saying, you know, we do this in, in the, my country, but, you know, not in the UK. Um, and I think also in terms of moving on to the second point with marketization, there's a sort of sense in which certainly my generation talks about how education was, higher education, and now how it is and what's lost. And perhaps we put, need to put the lens much more on how things are changing, the complexities of this, which I think those students also talked about, not just in terms of English and the other. They were talking about moving between different disciplines and theories and how you bring it all together. It's, it's incredibly complex. Um, but in terms of marketization, I think an outsider perspective is also um, really interesting. It's not necessarily negative. Um, I did research um, a year or so ago about how the um, practices, well, I call them bureaucratic literacies in my university, uh, when we supervise a student, we have to send minutes of the meeting to the office afterwards to be filed for accountability purposes. Um, and I was interested in how does this change the relationship between the teacher and the student, the fact there's a third party. Um, so I interviewed both supervisors and students about this, not just international students, but it was interesting that a lot of the international students saw this as UK higher education, and they valued the goal setting and so on, and the targets and the fact um, there was clearer kind of destination, if you like. So it was giving me a different perspective on this kind of marketized relationship as I saw it. Um, what what I feel the last one is about is really the challenge that we came up with in some of the groups about this kind of gulf that can develop between the international office or those concerned with perhaps the more explicit marketized areas of the university and those like me who are blissfully kind of ignoring it, um, who are teach involved in teaching and learning. And I realized from the research that I was doing into agencies that it was really clear that hierarchies within the university were changing and that I needed to be more aware of what was going on in terms of the commercialization discourses. Rather than just dismissing them, you need to engage with them, I think, as academics. Um, so I think that's my last point. <laughs> <laughs>